Good morning, everybody. When uh, high levels of lead were detected in the waters in Flint, Michigan a few years back, eventually the people of Flint were advised not to drink or even bathe in the water. And uh, it became a really a serious crisis, if you can imagine. Suddenly, none of the water in your house or coming through the pipes can be used. And drastic action was necessary. And you know the the thing is that initially, lead poisoning is kind of hard to detect. At the beginning, it doesn't seem like anything's happening. But the lead builds up in the body and isn't really noticed until actually dangerous amounts have accumulated in the body and the damage has been done. Because the problem with lead is your body can't get rid of it. And it doesn't actually take very much for it to become poisonous. Anything over 15 parts in a billion, that's 15 parts out of a billion, is cause for concern. 40 parts per billion requires drastic action. In Flint, there were some homes that recorded as much as 1,500 parts per billion. Okay, so we're talking drastic situation. And by the time they realized what was happening, a lot of people were already hurt. It took both state and federal intervention to even start to fix the problem, and they're still not done. Meanwhile, thousands of people were hurt. And, you know, the thing is, when it comes to lead, there really isn't much room for tolerance. It's just not something you can, like, take lightly or look away or just pass off to another day. You know, our society loves tolerance. We often hear, live and let live, or I have my way and you can have yours. And because we have so many people from so many different backgrounds and so many different beliefs, a level of tolerance is necessary for a peaceful society. In fact, one of the problems is we seem to be getting less of that kind of tolerance of being able to at least talk to each other and listen. So in some ways, tolerance is a good thing. You know, it's part of like how we work together with the differences, being able to disagree and yet still treat one another with respect and even friendliness. Friendliness is something we could use more of. But it turns out not everything should be tolerated. Poison in the water supply, that's not where you want tolerance. In a similar vein, most people agree that abuse of women and children should not be tolerated, especially the way it has been in the past. And so there are limits to tolerance. Tolerance is sometimes helpful and useful, but other times it's downright harmful. So there are limits if society is going to be safe and healthy for everyone. Now, we're doing a series called What Christ Said to the Church. We're looking at the first... Uh, the letters to the seven churches in the very first chapters of the book of Revelation. Last week was a lot of fun. It was a great example of something we want to be like. This week is not so much fun because it's an example of what not to be. <laughs> it's an example of you know, what to avoid. And it's what Jesus said to the church in Pergamon. And it says something about our own tolerance and how we look at it. So Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 12. 
To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city, where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. Now, Pergamon was a city that was once the seat of kings. It was like, used to be the chief city, political city at one time. And during the time in which this was written, it was also home to many great pagan temples. Uh, it was kind of known for sort of its big temples, including a giant uh, temple to Zeus, Dionysus, Athena, and others. Not only that, the governor there was had a unique power uh, for governors in the Roman Empire. The governor there had what they called the power of the sword, which meant that he could execute capital punishment without checking with Rome, which meant if he didn't like you, he could, like, kill you and no questions would be asked. With those two things combined, it was a hostile place for followers of Jesus because it was the norm of the day, of course, to um, engage in worship of these pagan deities. And it's where, so to speak, Satan has his throne. That's the way that Jesus talks about it. This is where Satan has his throne. This is where he's living. This is a place of darkness, the church there, he says, has remained loyal to Jesus, even though one of its members was put to death. So in some ways, okay, they're doing good. But then he kind of says, but there's some problems. I have something against you. There's some serious problems. So what can we learn here? First of all, we learn that Jesus holds the church accountable. It starts off with this reminder. Jesus has the sharp, double-edged sword. This is not the popular picture of Jesus. You know, usually you're, you know, our pictures of Jesus are gentle Jesus, meek and mild. Not Jesus with the sword raised, ready to hit somebody. You know, and uh, it's an image that speaks of judgment and of defense of truth. It's like a fighting picture. So he's like saying to them at the front end, like, I'm ready to fight over this. I'm ready to execute judgment over this. And it reminds them also that there's somebody greater than the Roman governor who is watching. You know, it reminds them Jesus is going to hold the churches accountable. There's actually a saying in the Bible that says judgment begins with the house of God. While God in his mercy delays the judgment of the world, he will not necessarily withhold or delay judgment if his own people are corrupted. And it's important to know that someone is holding 
even now, all churches accountable because churches haven't always done what's right. And God holds them accountable. My belief is that if a church is engaged in serious wrongdoing and won't correct it, God has a way to hold the church accountable. He will expose it to the secular authorities who will then do the correcting. I think that's probably what happened with the priest abuse scandal that hit the Roman Catholic Church a few years back. They'd had many, 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 many opportunities to fix the problems themselves. They hadn't done it. So eventually God exposed the whole thing and let the secular government deal with it. That didn't turn out so good. Second, we see here, in the midst of darkness, we must be both faithful and holy. These are the two major goals for the church that we see in this passage. What Jesus is looking for in his church, number one, he wants to see, are they faithful? And number two, are they holy? He wants the church to be faithful. He, they need to stick with Jesus and serve him only, no matter what. You know, a, a church that no longer listens to Jesus or worships Jesus, well, then that's probably not really a church anymore. And the believers in Pergamon, they were okay on that front. They were sticking with Jesus. They got the faithfulness part. But the other goal, they weren't doing so well with. And that goal was that they should be holy. Now, we don't use the word holy very much, except in church. So what does that mean? Well, to be holy is to be special. To be holy is to be different than everyone else. To be holy is to be an example to the world of the life that God wants. To be holy is to be pure, untainted by any secret poisonous ideas. It's sort of like when you're talking about your water and you say this water is pure, it means it doesn't have any poisons and doesn't have any stuff in it that shouldn't be there. It's just water and nothing else. And that's kind of what holiness means, that it's all Jesus and nothing else. But in this church, there were some people who were saying that Jesus' followers were free to engage in idol worship and sexual immorality. And they make this reference to the people following the teaching of Balaam, which requires you to know a story from the Old Testament. Balaam was a corrupt prophet in the Old Testament, and he was hired by a king named Balak to curse the people of God because this king, Balak, didn't want them to be a competitor to his group of people. And so he hired Balaam, go out and curse them in the name of God. But every time Balaam tried to go out and curse them, he ended up blessing the people of God because there was some control that God had over what he said. So King Balak was upset and wasn't going to pay him. Like, I didn't pay you to bless them. <laughs> so Balaam wanted his money. And he needed to figure out, how can I do this? He wants me to curse them, but God won't let me curse them. How can I do this? And he came up with a plan. And he says, if you can entice these people into public immorality and idolatry, then God himself will curse them, and I'll be able to curse them. No problem. And your problem will be solved. And so that's what they did. They set up a scheme with some of the women from Balak's people who came in and got a bunch of the Israelites involved in idol worship and kind of a, a party situation where there was a lot of public immorality. And so it happened. 
And it was like a deadly poison was released in the camp. And before it was all over, there was a plague. Many died. And it had a bad outcome. So that's the story that's in the background. So what Jesus is saying is you've got somebody in Pergamon who's teaching something similar, who's teaching the same idea that you can like engage in this behavior and have no consequences. You know, somebody's saying, you know, all's forgiven and you can do anything you like. And it turns out, well, actually, no, not really. Because that's a mortal threat to God's goal that the church should be holy. Now, this is not just like an argument, you know, from 2,000 years ago that has nothing to do with us today. In our time, there are teachers of a kind of hyper-grace that say you cannot sin and that you can do anything. And because you're under grace, it's not sin. I'm not going to tell you their names because then you'll go look them up. Yeah, but they're out there. It's the same kind of teaching, actually, with the same kind of results. Like, they, like there's that, you know, God will forgive everything and you can just do anything. You know, one of these teachers uh, I ran across when I was visiting some of our churches in Australia, and the pastors there told me, here's what happened. Some people got involved in this teaching. The first thing they did was saying, well, well you know, we don't want to follow the authority of the church. So they left the church, isolated themselves from all the churches. And then before it was all over, the people who were taken in by this teaching ended up in adultery and divorce. Bad teaching leads to bad behavior, which leads to a bad ending. So we need to be on our guard. The third thing we see here is this. Some things cannot be tolerated if a church is to be holy or to be pure. You know, the problem wasn't that everybody was doing these things. It wasn't, it, it, well, he wasn't saying you all are doing this or you're even promoting it. That wasn't the problem. The problem was that some people were doing these things and the rest were tolerating it. And they were being rebuked for their toleration of this bad teaching and, and bad behavior. Now, it's easy for us reading this passage, to think, isn't this like a little bit overblown? I mean, how was the entire group responsible for what a few of their members are doing in private? You know, most of the time when people say, you know, did you know so-and-so is doing X, Y, Z? I'm sort of like, well, you know, that's their problem. That's not mine. You know, that's what I want to say. But of course, here's what you have to understand. What these people were doing wasn't private. It was actually out in public, and you, you, I think we probably, you know, most of us aren't acquainted with paganism and, and the, the festivals and whatnot that went on at the time, so we don't really have a good sense of why this was such a big issue. But here's an actual description of how sort of things might have gone in Pergamon. In the spring, and this is from a history writer, the Greek cities celebrated a feast of flowers, a three-day festival to Dionysius, who's the god of wine. And so during that feast, the wine flowed freely and everybody was more or less drunk. And you can imagine what kind of behavior went with that. At the beginning of April, they celebrated Aphrodite's great festival, Aphrodite's the goddess of love, 
And on that occasion, sexual freedom was the order of the day. And so it went through various festivals of the year. And in, you know, it, part and parcel of the festivals was both idol worship, but also public orgies, in essence. Um, you know, public immorality in front as part of the worship of the gods. So what was going on was not like something private or hidden. This is not people who are losing control. This is people who are kind of exhibiting their worst behavior. And some of these people were saying, I'm an upstanding member of the church, but I can engage in all of this same activity. And it was kind of a spiritual poison that Jesus says cannot be tolerated. It not only tempted people to return to paganism, it seriously undermined marriage and family. And marriage and family is something that God really cares about a lot. Because when marriage and family are undermined, guess what? It's nearly always the women and children who get hurt the most. They end up being alone. And how can loving be wrong? Well, it's wrong when it results in women struggling to raise children alone and when children have to grow up without both their parents or shuttling back and forth between two homes. And there's all kinds of psychological studies that have been done that show that children in these situations don't do as well. So marriage and its defense is an important concern of God's. And a little of this public immorality is like a little bit of lead poisoning. At first it seems harmless, but over time it will kill you. In our time, a similar activity might be, you know, I'm thinking like, okay, we don't worship the Greek gods anymore, and we don't have these public festivals anymore, so where does this apply to us? And then I ran across, you know, the fact that what we call the hookup culture on many college campuses, where students engage in parties where there's lots of sexual encounters without any expectation of feelings or relationship, and one survey found that 70% of the students nationwide are engaging in this behavior, which is probably not going to work out very well because it's going to end up in greater difficulty forming long-lasting relational bonds, more broken marriages, more hurt children. It's not just a fun, harmless thing of youth. It's actually relational lead poisoning. And that's the kind of thing in view here when it says that some were committing sexual immorality. So that's, that's what Jesus is very concerned about. Now, some of you might be a little uncomfortable. It might be making you difficult to be talking about this because, first of all, generally in our society, we don't talk about these subjects. Second, what Jesus is clearly saying is that the church shouldn't, sexual, shouldn't un tolerate sexual immorality that undermines marriage. There are limits. We're not free to just indulge our lustful appetites as we please. And that's kind of a contradiction to something our society's commitment to tolerance holds. It's sort of like there's a, this is one of those places where if you're going to follow Jesus, it's not going to fit well with our current society. Number four, the collective life of the church is meant to be a light in the darkness. There's this other thing kind of buried in here in this passage that probably bothers most modern people. We might ask something like, why should I care that someone else is doing as long as I know that what I'm doing is right? 
And it's a very individualistic point of view. And we tend to think of ourselves very individualistically. We think ourselves primarily as individuals rather than members of a family or a community. But in this passage, Jesus is clearly speaking to the group as a whole. And it's a group problem from him. And he's thinking of them in a collective sense. They have a collective mission to be light in this place of darkness. They're one church, one community, one family. And so it's not so easy to just write off individual misbehaviors in this kind of public immoral way so that are so antithetical to Christian moral standards. It's, it's like there's a, there's a community concern at, 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 uh, in view. And that's why here at the Vineyard, we require leaders and members to lead a life that's an example of a better way of living. Because we collectively need to be light in our community, and we can't do that if some of us are bad examples. It's not just a private concern. Number five, when darkness compromises the church, repentance is called for. So what Jesus does, he points out this situation and then says, you need to repent. Repent or face the wrath of Jesus. To repent is to make an about face, to go in the opposite direction. The entire group has to make a change or else they'll find themselves fighting Jesus himself, which is not where you want to be. Basically what he's saying to you, the water is poisoned and drastic actions needed and fast. Finally, he concludes with this very interesting little paragraph that has generated pages and pages and pages of speculation because Jesus makes a promise. And I'm just going to sum it up as those who overcome the darkness receive a better reward. Those who overcome the darkness, who hold to the name and truth and the teachings of Jesus, get a better reward. And the scholars don't really agree on what's the exact nature of the reward the hidden manna and the new name written on the stone. Probably a slight majority of them might say that they are references to the manna that was hidden in the Ark of the Covenant, where the presence of God would be manifest, and which only the high priest could be close to, and the name on the stone might refer to the stones on the breastplate of the high priest that they used for divine guidance. If that's the case, then Jesus is promising that those who overcome will be rewarded with something far more exciting, far more engaging, far more eternal than the pagan festivals could offer, that is, direct access to the presence of God. If you really want love, if you really want to feel connected, if you really want to have joy and joy everlasting, then Jesus is the way to all of that. It's a better reward, and it's going to be worth it. The band can make their way back up. So is all this something we have to be concerned about now? Well, bad teaching still leads to bad behavior, and that still leads to bad ending. There are still false teachers in the world who would lead us astray by denying or distorting the teaching of Jesus and the apostles. Back in the mid-1980s, over in England, I met an exciting group of young people at a charismatic Anglican church. Uh, it was during the time of the goth craze. I don't know how many of you are old enough to remember this. Um, but everybody wore black. That was the thing. You had to wear black, and you, you know, it, black was the thing. It never made sense to me, but 
it was the thing. That, okay? And so most of these young people were like that. And a whole bunch of them found Jesus, and they were full of faith and enthusiasm in this one particular city. And uh, they started an evening service for young people that they called the 9 o'clock service because it met at 9 o'clock at night. And an amazing thing happened, particularly for that time period in England, where there were almost no young people in the churches at all. This service uh, started with a few and quickly grew to around 600 young people coming every week at 9 o'clock at night on Sunday night. And hundreds were finding Jesus and beginning a new life. And that service... And this movement among the young people became famous all over England as an, sort of a new expression of what faith and church could be like for a new generation. Like, they maybe there's hope for the future. You know, just, just because they want to wear black doesn't mean they can't have Jesus and, you know, so forth. So it was really exciting. It seemed like there was so much potential. And I met a bunch of them, prayed for a bunch of them, um, you know, visited some of the things that happened around that time. But somewhere along the way, in the next 10 years, things started to get weird. And it started when they became deeply involved with a new teaching that emphasized creation and the need to accept who God had made you to be, including an embracing of more overt sensuality, even in the worship and they began to move away from any kind of accountability to the wider church. They, got more, they became more independent. Um, they began to invite guest speakers who had questionable connections. Some of them seemed to have uh, more, more connections with New Age or occult spirituality. And the interesting thing was that people were observing all of this happening nearby, and they had concerns but nobody wanted to intervene. Nobody wanted to ask hard questions. Nobody wanted to insist on some sort of accountability because everybody wanted to tolerate this wonderful new experiment. They didn't want to squelch their creativity or alienate all these young people. But then in 1995, it all blew up when it came out that the leader of the group had over the previous number of years seduced and sexually abused over 40 women in the group in the name of their new spirituality. The story was carried in gory detail in every newspaper in the country. It was like the biggest breaking scandal in England at the time. Hundreds of young people ended up in counseling. Most of them left Jesus and the church entirely. And to this day... The name of 9 o'clock service has a black mark all over England. Their once promising potential for reaching a whole new generation was destroyed. All because they fell for the same old trick of Satan. <laughs> the same thing he's been using for thousands of years. The teaching the Bible associates with Balaam. A bad ending came because there were no limits to their tolerance, no one would stand for truth and holiness. And a lot of people got hurt. So let us all be alert to Satan's schemes so that we might not fall under the same kind of judgment and destruction. Let's stand and respond to the Lord in the song.